Larger Catechism. Question 162. What is a sacrament? A sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ in His church to signify, seal, and exhibit unto those that are within the covenant of grace the benefits of His mediation to strengthen and increase their faith and all other graces to oblige them to obedience to testify and cherish their love and communion one with another and to distinguish them from those that are without. Okay, so we're thinking about the category of sacrament. We're seeing both today. It's a glorious and rare thing. So, that being the case, let's consider the general category. A sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ in His church. Okay, an ordinance is a thing created by law. So we have this law, this ordinance. And it's instituted by Christ in His church. Now, the first sacrament is, in fact, the two trees. The, the sacraments that were first given are the trees in the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. They were signs and seals of the covenant. They were signs and seals of the covenant of works. And so the eating of the tree of life pertains to righteousness and the obtaining of life. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil pertains to violation of the covenant and the penalty of death that comes by determining good and evil for oneself rather than acknowledging God and his authority to determine what is good and evil for us. Now, in the covenant of grace, what was given in Genesis 17 was circumcision. And it says in Genesis 17, verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto you and to your seed after you. And in verse 10 it said, This is my covenant which you shall keep between you and your seed after me. Sorry, you and your seed after you. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. Now what was the covenant? Was the covenant the promises? Or was the covenant... Circumcision. That language, that the idea that circumcision is the covenant, is sacramental language. And that's what sacraments are. They represent the covenant. So this language, this is sacramental language. So when you, don't, when you understand a sacrament, you understand it's a symbol for something. It's not the reality of the thing it symbolizes. And so... That being the case, circumcision is not the covenant, it's the sign of the covenant. The covenant are the promises that God gave to Abraham. So, what's a sign given to do? A sign is given to signify. Right, you see the word signify? It's, you could just read it as signify. Right? To signify a thing is to, to give meaning. You're communicating information. A seal is something you put on something, right? And, and a seal is just a sign that's placed on something. So baptism and the Lord's Supper are both signs. They symbolize something. They are seals. They are put on individuals to mark them, to distinguish them. It's not a magical marking. It's not an indelible mark as though somebody is put into being saved by these signs. They're signs, and they're used as marks. And in that role, what they do is they display or exhibit. There's an old Latin word, offere, which just literally means to display. Okay, And so sometimes you'll see the word offer in the Westminster Standards and it's used on occasion in that way in the sense of displaying or exhibiting. The sacraments are a sign. They are signs. They are marks placed on people and they have the effect of exhibiting 
unto those that are in the covenant of grace the benefits of Christ's mediation. His work on your behalf. And that information has the effect of strengthening and increasing faith. Right? The truth that's revealed by God strengthens, increases faith. It strengthens by causing us to remember and have a habit of thought. It increases by causing us to think about it and then have new information by meditating. So we draw new conclusions. So we connect things that we remember to see new truths that we didn't see before. And so there is this strengthening of the faith and there is the increasing of it. Now, this also has the effect of increasing all other graces. Think about that for a second. Graces here is being used not to refer to the attribute of God, the attitude of God. It's being used to talk about the gifts that God gives to us out of grace. So all of our gifts are increased by the increasing of our faith. Faith is the principal gift. And all the other gifts are improved in their utility by having a deeper faith. Sacraments oblige us to obedience. Okay? They increase our understanding. They increase the objective re- displaying that's been, been given. Right? And, and so they increase our obligation to obey God. They testify and cherish our love and communion with each other. So the word cherish is used there in a way that you're probably not accustomed to. So you think about this. The sacraments testify our love and communion with one with another. They, they testify to the fact that we love each other. And they testify to the fact that we share in the good gifts of God together. They also cherish that. What does that mean? Is the sacraments persons? Is this like... You know, some sort of Disney movie where feelings have feelings and sacraments have feelings. The sacraments are not themselves cherishing in the sense of having feelings or valuing of things. The idea is cherish. The old language here, you think about the fact that we're called to uh, to cherish wives. The husbands were called to cherish wives. And the idea of cherishing there, we read that and we we often think about the idea that, well, if I'm cherishing my wife, that means I'm, I'm having really strong inward affections towards my wife. That's not the point. That, that's used to talk about the idea of, of honoring the wife in a manner that's appropriate to the fact that she's a weaker vessel. So it's, the cherishing is the external cherishing. It's the acts of honoring that are appropriate to her. So when we take the sacraments, we are recovenanting and expressing outward honor outward displays of valuation of our love for each other and our sharing in gifting and work together and so the effect is it distinguishes the church from the world it distinguishes them from those that are without see being in the covenant of grace this is talking about the covenant of grace in terms of its visible sense. Right? If, if you receive baptism, you're in the covenant of grace. But unless you believe, you don't have the benefits of the covenant of grace. The faith is the instrument whereby there's a legal effectuating of the obtaining of the benefits of the covenant of grace. The word instrumental cause is a weird wording, right? Talk about faith being the instrumental cause of our justification. What does that even mean? Well, a legal instrument for establishing an agreement would be like a contract. You write a contract and you sign it. And the signing of that is the instrument to effectuate that agreement. So God has established in his covenant that the instrument that effectuates the benefits on a, is faith. Well, what causes faith? Well, the effectual cause, right? The Holy Spirit. 
And what's the grounds? What's the merits? The meritorious cause is Christ. Christ obtains that for us. He sends his spirit to give us faith. And that faith is used to make it so that that baptism is not a curse, but is instead a blessing. Okay, the same with the Lord's Supper. So, when I talk about a legal cause there, I'm not saying that faith is a meritorious cause. I'm not saying that God says, oh, you believe, so you're good enough. That's a confusing of the meritorious with the instrumental cause. Okay. So, this is sacrament. Understanding that and getting that and getting Genesis 17, verses 7 and 10, understanding that circumcision is not the covenant, it's called the covenant because of the fact that it represents the promises. You get that, that that erases most of the confusion that occurs about sacraments from that point forward. So now let's move faster. 163, what are the parts of a sacrament? The parts of a sacrament are two. The one, an outward and sensible sign used according to Christ's own appointment. The other, an inward and spiritual grace thereby signified. So there's the outward and the inward. The outward is the sign. So in baptism, you're marked out as in the covenant of grace. In the Lord's Supper, you're marked out as in the covenant of grace. If you have faith, you have the inward reality in both baptism and the Lord's Supper. 164. How many sacraments has Christ instituted in the church under the New Testament? Under the New Testament, Christ has instituted in his church only two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is the entry rite. Lord's Supper is the continuing rite. So think about this. You've got the inward and the outward, and you've got the entry and you've got the continuing. Okay, it's these categories. Think about the confusion that occurs when you have seven sacraments like Rome. There's, there's more than entry and continuation. You end up with additional categories. And the confusion is also that not everybody in the covenant would have all the signs. And so there would be kind of distinguishing lines which would imply different covenants. So we have two signs for one covenant. Both have an outward sign and an inward reality. So 165, what is baptism? Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament wherein Christ has ordained the washing with water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost to be a sign and seal, right? A sign, the thing that symbolizes something. And a seal is that when you, when you mark something with it. So it's a sign that marks. And what does it symbolize? Our engrafting into Christ. Right, so being joined together with Christ. Remission of sins by Christ's blood. Regeneration by His Spirit. Which is the giving of that spiritual life. We just read John 3 today. And that text is prominent about that idea. Adoption. Resurrection unto everlasting life. And whereby the parties baptized are solemnly admitted into the visible church. Being admitted into the visible church is being admitted into the covenant of grace in a visible way. And enter into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. So you who are baptized today, you entered into an engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. Right, so you, you're committed. You're in covenant. You have this sworn obligation to be God's. Question 166. Unto whom is baptism to be administered? Baptism is not to be administered to any that are out of the visible church. And so strangers from the covenant of promise. So there we have those things laid side by side again. Covenant of promise and the visible church. 
until they profess their faith in Christ and obedience to Him. Right? So when somebody is outside of the visible church, by profession of faith and profession of desire to obey, and of intention to obey, they are able to be brought in and then they are baptized and that is how you bring somebody in. But infants descending from parents, either both or but one of them, professing faith in Christ and obedience to Him, are in that respect within the covenant and to be baptized. And so you have the fact that in Genesis 17 it was given for the, the children of Abraham. And there's a very explicit text in 1 Corinthians 7.14 that shows this is obviously to be continue to be applied in the New Covenant. But that's not necessary because someone has to prove the change. Let's let that sink in. Let's not be too quick here. We're not, we're not needy for approval that we have found some verse in the New Testament that shows that children are a part of the covenant. That was the way it was. Where's the change? 1 Corinthians 7.14 For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. How are they holy? Are children necessarily saved? Are you got a believing parent, so you're saved? No, that's not what it's meaning. The holiness is an external, a covenantal holiness. So 167, how is our baptism to be improved by us? The needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all our life long, especially in a time of temptation and when we are present at the administration of it to others. By serious and thankful consideration of the nature of baptism and of the ends for which Christ instituted baptism, the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed by baptism, and our solemn vow made in baptism, by being humbled for our sinful defilement, our falling short of and walking contrary to the grace of baptism and our engagements, by growing up to assurance of pardon of sin and of all other blessings sealed to us in that sacrament, by drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ into whom we are baptized for the mortifying of sin and quickening of grace. And by endeavoring to live by faith and to have our conversation in holiness and righteousness. That last part, our conversation in holiness and righteousness. That's an old usage of the word conversation. Conversation used to be used to refer to kind of the idea of how do you carry yourself? How do you, how do you live? Right? So the idea is to have our way of living our, our way of behaving ourselves in holiness and righteousness as those that have in baptism given up their names to Christ and to walk in brotherly love as being baptized by the same Spirit into one body. And this baptism is a call for us to devote ourselves to Christ our King. It is an engagement to do so. And we are to improve our baptisms, to, to use them well, to put them to good use. So you children who were just baptized, I encourage you as quickly as you can to come to a place where you are fit to come to the Lord's table by having studied and being ready to examine yourselves and to examine the church. To not squander it, to not waste the time. Any of you who are waiting and being catechized, complete that. Come to a knowledge that is sufficient to be able to come to the table. Improve your baptisms. So, improving your baptism, you get to the place where you are fit to come to the Lord's Supper. So what is the Lord's Supper? Question 168. 
The Lord's Supper is a sacrament of the New Testament wherein, by giving and receiving bread and wine according to the appointment of Jesus Christ, His death is showed forth. You could say, exhibited, displayed, proclaimed. And they that worthily communicate feed upon His body and blood to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. Have their union and communion with Him confirmed. Testify and renew their thankfulness and engagement to God and their mutual love and fellowship each with other as members of the same mystical body. There's a lot of overlap there about how we're supposed to improve our baptism. In giving and receiving bread and wine in the way that Christ has told us to do it, His death is proclaimed. His death is shown forth. And we think upon that meaning. We think upon His death and what it did. If you take the Lord's Supper in worthy manner, you are feeding upon His body and blood. Not materially, but in a spiritual way. And that causes you to have a spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. So the question, if you're not quite sure how to understand that, the idea of the spiritual nourishment and the feeding upon the body and blood, continue to pay attention. Get that answered. When you hear something strange as being preached, your job needs to be to figure out what does that mean? Okay? You know the main way to not be bored while preaching is happening? is to ask, what does that mean? How does that apply? Is that true? Right? Testing, one of the fun things about preaching is testing it to see if it's true. And you go, could I prove that? Could I prove that wrong? Where is that in the Bible? And so questioning, asking questions of the sermon in your head, writing them down. And so you, you are having a conversation at the same time. As you hear, you are asking questions and considering it. So how do you feed on the body and blood of Christ? How do you have spiritual nourishment? So we'll get there. (coughs) Then there's this question of, okay, so they have their union and communion with Him confirmed. What does that mean? Taking the Lord's Supper... Our union is confirmed. Our, what's our union? Our union is an intellectual union. We have truths that he's revealed. And it's, it's a legal union. We're in covenant with him. What's the communion? How are they different? Because we think about communion and we go, oh, well, we're reminded of truths and we're recovenanting, right? But communion also has to do with the idea of the enjoyment of the gifts together and the pursuing of the goal. So the communion involves not just the legal and intellectual union. It involves the idea of working together and sharing in those gifts and the enjoyment of them. Think about the peace offering. The peace offering, the people of Israel, they would eat of the sacrifice along with the priests. Okay, so that idea of enjoying the blessing together. It's not just the legal right. It's not just the intellectual understanding and belief. It's the enjoyment of those blessings together as well. So those things are strengthened. Our union is strengthened. How? how? Which, which part strengthened? Is the legal union strengthened? Like if we take the Lord's Supper more, are we more strongly connected to the imputed righteousness of Christ? No. The union that's increased is the intellectual union, the faith. The communion that's increased is our enjoying of the blessings of God or enjoying together we have more enjoyment of those truths together we're honoring each other by coming to the table together coming to the Lord's table we testify and renew our thankfulness we testify to it because it's called the Eucharist right? it's, it's this giving of thanks for the fact that Christ has paid for our sins and given us all the benefits of the covenant of grace. 
So it's, it's a testimony of our thankfulness. But it's also a renewal of it because we're obligated to stop and think about what God has done for us in Christ. It's a meal, it's a covenant feast, where God says, ah, stop what you're doing and get thankful. It's this thing that he requires a rhythm of being grateful to occur. This idea that we're renewing our engagement to God to be only his... In the Lord's Supper, we testify and renew our mutual love and fellowship, each with the other. Fellowship is specifically the work. Right? The communion is our sharing in the blessings and in the gifts for the work. The fellowship is the sharing in the work. And so we testify to our fellowshipping together. Are working together, right? My, you know, my go-to example for this, right? The Fellowship of the Ring. What were they doing? Were they hanging out and playing video games, or were they trying to desperately climb up a hill to destroy the ring, right? They're working together to accomplish a mission. The Fellowship of the Ring would not be a very good book if the fellowship were the same as most Christian fellowship. It would be horrifically boring. Fellowship is supposed to be working together. So we testify to our mutual love and fellowship, each with the other, as members of the same mystical body. The mystical body is not an understandable body. It's not a. It's a. It's a body that has been revealed that was once hidden. Right, a mystery is something that was hidden that's now revealed. It's a mystical body in the sense that it's a body that would not be seen apart from special revelation. So, we are united by covenant as a single body. We are united by having the same doctrine. And so we are united to Christ and to each other. And we are to function together, to work together, and to share in the benefits together. That's how we are a body. And that's how we are united to Christ. So, 169. How is Christ appointed bread and wine? to be given and received in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Christ has appointed the ministers of His Word in the administration of this sacrament of the Lord's Supper to set apart the bread and wine from common use by the word of institution, thanksgiving, and prayer, to take and break the bread, and to give both the bread and the wine to the communicants, who are, by the same appointment, to take and eat the bread and to drink the wine in thankful remembrance that the body of Christ was broken and given and his blood shed for them. Okay, Thankful remembrance. Thankful remembrance. That's how you feed upon the body of Christ. That's how you feed upon the blood of Christ. Thankful remembrance. And that provides spiritual nourishment. Thankful remembrance. So question 170. How do they that worthily communicate in the Lord's Supper feed upon the body and blood of Christ therein? Remember I said, ask that question, right? You go, what's this? How do we feed upon? Well, the guys who write, wrote the larger, larger catechism were thinking too. They were thinking ahead. They thought we need to explain this. How do they that worthily communicate in the Lord's Supper feed upon the body and blood of Christ therein? Answer, as the body and blood of Christ are not corporally, that means like bodily, or carnally, fleshly, right? His flesh isn't really there. They're not corporally or carnally present in, with, or under the bread and wine in the Lord's Supper, and yet are spiritually present to the faith of the receiver. No less truly and really than the elements themselves are to the outward senses. Okay? This is a denial of what Rome teaches about transformation, and it's a denial about what the Lutherans teach about the presence of Christ's body in, with, or under the bread and his blood in, with, or under the wine. So, Christ is spiritually present to the faith of the receiver. Christ is spiritually present to the faith of the receiver. As you think upon 
with thankful remembrance what Christ did on the cross, he is present in your mind by faith. How does that work? And get this, listen to the emphasis. No less truly and really than the elements themselves are to their outward senses. Right. So if you have the bread in your mouth and you go, so Christ is present by faith to me in my spirit. No less truly than this bread is in my mouth. You're drinking wine. You go, Christ is present in my spirit. No less truly than the wine I am drinking right now. Okay, so it's truly and really, which is fascinating language. Because what are the basic philosophical questions? What's true? What's real? What's good? Okay. Okay. What's true? The word of God. What's real? Well, every all of reality is either God or stuff he made. The stuff he made, what is that? The stuff that he, by his word, he made from nothing. He upholds it by the word of his power. He governs it by his decree, his fiat, his word. Reality is not physical in its deepest sense. Reality in its deepest sense is God and his decrees. God made matter. He made bodies. We have bodies. They're real. But they are upheld by the word of his power. And when we think upon Christ, is it possible for us to have him, his humanity, present in our minds by faith? Well, if truth is reality, if reality is truth, then we can have him really and truly in our minds. And it's not just a representation of him. It's him. And so, by faith, we eat and drink Christ. We take him in. We are nourished as our souls take in more of Christ. In the scriptures, we have the mind of Christ. We are illuminated by the spirit of Christ. We believe the word of Christ. We're indwelt by him. And we, that is encouraged as we take the Lord's Supper. He is really and truly present in our minds, in our spirits, by faith. We feed upon the body and blood of Christ, not after a corporal and carnal manner, but in a spiritual manner. Yet truly and really. It says that again. It's like they wanted that to be emphasized. So let's read that again. Answer, as the body and blood of Christ are not corporally or carnally present, in, with, or under the bread and wine the Lord's Supper, and yet are spiritually present to the faith of the receiver, no less truly and really than the elements themselves are to their outward senses. So they that worthily communicate in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper do therein feed upon the body and blood of Christ, not after a corporal and carnal, but in a spiritual manner, yet truly and really. While by faith they receive and apply unto themselves Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. You think upon the death of Christ. You think upon what it means. You think about the benefits that are obtained in the death of Christ for you. You feed upon him. 171. 
How are they that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to prepare themselves before they come unto it? They that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper are, before they come, to prepare themselves thereunto by examining themselves of their being in Christ. Right? Do you have the faith of their sins and wants? Right? And you're supposed to repent. Of the truth and measure of their knowledge, faith, repentance, love to God and the brethren, charity to all men, forgiving those that have done them wrong, and of their desires after Christ, and of their new obedience, and by renewing the exercise of these graces by serious meditation and fervent prayer. The goal is to examine what do I understand and believe? Am I trying to grow? It's a time to take stock. The Lord's Supper is a recovenanting. And when you come to the Lord's Supper, the goal is for you to stop ahead of time and think, how have I done since I last received the sacrament? And am I growing? One of the reasons Puritans so frequently wrote journals was so that they could track their own spiritual life and what their thoughts were on. How are you using your time to grow in the knowledge of God and to grow in your application of the truths that God has communicated? And the Lord's Supper is something that's a stake in the ground that says you have to resolve your conflicts now. Stop. Go resolve your conflicts. And if not, it becomes a public matter because you didn't take the Lord's Supper. And so, an elder better follow up with you. Question 172. May one who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation come to the Lord's Supper? I don't doubt of being in Christ, but I do frequently doubt my sufficient preparation. You read that list from the previous question, it's a bunch of serious things that need to be done. But may one doubt of his being in Christ or of his due preparation come to the Lord's Supper? Answer, one who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper may have true interest in Christ, though he be not yet assured of his interest in Christ. And in God's account has it, if he be duly affected by the apprehension of the want of it, and unfeignedly desires to be found in Christ, and to depart from iniquity. In which case, because promises are made, and this sacrament is appointed, for the relief even of weak and doubting Christians, he is to bewail his unbelief, and labor to have his doubts resolved. And so doing, he may and ought to come to the Lord's Supper, that he may be further strengthened. When you come to the Lord's Supper after you're doubting, am I really saved or doubting? Uh, did I really sufficiently prepare? You are recommitting to resolve if you have faith and to resolve your preparation. Make it so that you prepare better. One seventy three. May any who profess the faith and desire to come to the Lord's Supper be kept from it, such as are found to be ignorant or scandalous, notwithstanding their profession of the faith and desire to come to the Lord's Supper, may and ought to be kept from that sacrament by the power which Christ hath left in his church until they receive instruction and manifest their reformation. And so ignorance can be resolved through instruction. Living in a scandalous way can be resolved through public repentance. One seventy four. What is required of them that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in the time of the administration of it? So you're about to do this, right? So here's the instructions of what to do during that time. It is required of them that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that during the time of the administration of the Lord's Supper with all holy reverence and attention, they wait upon God in that ordinance, diligently observe the sacramental elements and actions. Right. So the elements and actions, that's the bread and the wine, and the actions, what are the actions? The actions are the breaking and the pouring, the 
passing. So the sacrament's not just the bread and the wine. The sacrament includes the actions. It's a heedfully discern the Lord's body. So the discerning of the Lord's body involves understanding the meaning of the bread and the wine. And affectionately meditate on his death and sufferings. Right? How can you how can you think about the death and suffering of Christ in a way that's affectionate? When you realize what it did, that his death and suffering paid for your sin and capstoned his obedience. It's the final act of obedience. God said, Okay, now go die. It's a more glorious version of the light brigade. A command to go in to death. And thereby stir up themselves to vigorous exercise of their graces. You meditate on this and you think, Christ did this for me. I need to live in gratitude now and do what he's commanded and use the gifts he's given to me to accomplish good works in the particular place and time I'm in. And judging themselves and sorrowing for sin. When you think about the death of Christ, it should make you hate your sin more. In earnest hungering and thirsting after Christ. When you think about what Christ has done for you, you should think, I wish I knew more about Christ. Because the things I already know are pretty awesome. I wish I knew more. Feeding on him by faith. So you think about him, this meditating. You're, 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 you're eating the bread, drinking the wine, and you're remembering what those things represent, and you're thinking about it, trying to draw out new implications, trying to groove in those habits of thought. Receiving of his fullness. The, the fullness is in Christ. And as we think about Him, as we have union with Him, as we increase our faith, as our faith is strengthened, we are growing in the possession of His fullness so that His fullness fills all. Trusting in His merits, rejoicing in His love, giving thanks for His grace, in renewing of their covenant with God and love to all the saints. You think, uh, this is a lot, how can I remember all this? You're welcome to bring your larger catechism to the table and while you eat, literally meditate on those things. Not a bad thing to have a piece of paper with you. So what is the duty of Christians after they've received the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? The duty of Christians after they've received the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is to seriously consider how they've behaved themselves in taking the Lord's Supper. What success did it bring? Did you find quickening and comfort to bless God? You should bless God for it. And you should ask God to continue giving that quickening and comfort. The comfort's not like lazy, lazy boy comfort. Comfort is cum forte, right? With strength. Right? This is... Were you given more life, spiritual life? And were you made stronger? Then bless God for it. Beg Him to continue in giving you that life and strength. And guard, watch against relapses. Fulfill your vows. Engage yourself to a frequent attendance on the Lord's Supper. Plan to come back, right? But if you find that you didn't receive any present benefit, then... Go back and review your preparation and how you carried yourself in taking the Lord's Supper. Now, if you find that you prepared yourself well and you, and you used it well, then you can prove yourself to God in your own conscience and wait for the fruit in due time. It will come. But if you see you failed in preparation or how you used it, 
and be humbled. Repent. Attend upon it in the future with more care and more diligence. So having considered these things, how did the baptism and the Lord's Supper agree? How are they similar? Well, the sacrament of baptism, which is 176, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper agree in that the author of both is God. The spiritual part of both is Christ and his benefits. And both of them are seals, right, markers of the same covenant. Both are to be dispensed by ministers of the gospel and not by other men. And both are to be continued in the church of Christ until Christ returns. So 177, our last question. Wherein do the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper differ? Right? What are the differences between these? Well, baptism is to be administered once with water. To be a sign and seal of our regeneration and grafting into Christ. And that's to be given even to infants. But the Lord's Supper is to be administered often, repeatedly, in the elements of bread and wine, to represent and exhibit Christ as spiritual nourishment to the soul, and to confirm our continuance and growth in Christ. But not to infants, only to such as are of years and ability to examine themselves. To summarize all of that, take the Lord's Supper, remember what Christ has done in a thankful way. That is the key thing. Now, are there comments, questions, objections from the voting members or those with speaking rights? Mr. Nye? Thank you for your teaching, Elders. I have a few questions I want to ask. Uh, I'll try to keep it as brief as possible. Um, so you mentioned, when you were talking about uh, question 162, uh, you were talking about the uh, instrumental cause of salvation related to uh, the effectual cause. So you said that the effectual cause uh, was the Holy Spirit. Um, and I... I've been, I've always been say that grace, God's grace is the effectual cause of, the, of our salvation. I was thinking that you could be meaning that um, the Holy Spirit um, applies, effectually applies the, the gift of faith that is the result of God's grace. Is that, is that along the lines of what we're yeah, that's your explanation is great. Um, so the question is, how is the how how can it be the case that the Holy Spirit and the grace of God are the effectual cause? Right. If I say the Holy Spirit's mind, right, the, the Holy Spirit has the attitude of grace towards you, then I can say the Holy Spirit has grace towards you, right? His, his decree, his fiat, his thought causes. It's a when we talk about God causing something, it's his thinking that causes it. Right? So to say it's the grace of God or to say it's the Holy Spirit is not is not different. He has the preeminent role in regeneration. Right? Yes. So that's how I mean those to not be contradictory. Okay, okay great. So that's what you meant when you said that. Yes. Um Let's see. Uh, we'll talk about that one here. Um, 172. Can you, uh, question 172, it mentions the word of interest to keep Christ in public. I think it would be really helpful if you could use the that Again, that, that, that term, interest, as the designers use it, is different than the way we use it today. Um, okay, so to have an interest in something is to have some sort of ownership claim. So the idea here, you say, um, 
You know, one who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper may have a true you know, possession or ownership claim in Christ, a true interest in Christ. Okay, excellent. Thank okay. you. And our last question um, pertains to uh, when, we're, when we're going through question 171 in terms of preparation uh, for the Lord's table. So the question of reconciliation before coming to the Lord's table, the question is, should someone come to the Lord's table if there is a brother that they're not reconciled to outside of the local congregation? Yes. Okay. The answer is yes, as far as it depends on you. So are you engaged in a conflict resolution process? For example, I have ongoing conflict. I imagine I'm going to have ongoing conflict for the rest of my life every day until I die because of my station and because of the breadth of my network. Um, you know, I have pastors that I've been in communication with for a long time about doctrinal disputes, right? Those are unreconciled conditions, right? Every Baptist friend I've got has been harassed by me about baptism basically every time I get together with them. So that being the case, you know, the idea is you're in the process, and if the other person uh, is unrepentant, that's one thing. If you have an offense that you recognize, you can't come to the Lord's Supper until you repent of it. So if, you, if you're saying if, 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 if a person, you, in this situation, had an offense that, that you knew that you had, had um, committed against another brother, then you cannot come to the Lord's table until you have confessed it. And repeat. Right. Okay. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, and, and so that, that, that might exclude um, or be exclusive of if, if someone else has an offense against you, but it hasn't really been communicated or, yeah, like, like it's, you're, you're in a process of trying to work this out. Sure. Yeah. And so um, somebody has an offense against me, but they haven't communicated it to me. Uh-huh. Or, like, what needs to be done to make something right. Yeah. Then I have no way of knowing about the offense or what needs to be done. Sure. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Then let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. We ask that you would help us now as we come to the Lord's table, that we would do so in a worthy manner. We pray this in Christ's name.